Welcome to PDI, boys and girls. It's time for another public display of imagination adventure. So hop on board and shush the crowd because we're about to step inside the pages of another thrilling bestseller. And there's no telling what we might find. for the Public Display of Imagination podcast is provided by Joe King, Jayvon Fettinger, and Zachary Motes. You can find the complete playlist from Milltown Road Band on Spotify. Welcome to Public Display of Imagination, where we talk to authors about their deepest, darkest secrets, the pet they always wanted to have, the superhero they always wanted to be, and sometimes we even talk about their books. I'm your host, Mark Dwayne Combs, with any luck, no one will ever find out that you listen to this show. And if they do, you can always play that I Lost a Beck card. And now that we've got all that nonsense out of the way, let's find out who we're talking with today. Now people know when they see me coming that it's best to move aside. I ain't trying to harm nobody. He's the author of more than a dozen international bestsellers who's been hailed by Lee Child as one of the best thriller writers working today. He lives in Boston, teaches writing at Harvard, and fabricates novels that readers can't put down. He's written the highly praised series featuring crime scene investigator Darby McCormick and has a number of standalone page turners that we'll most certainly highlight at some point along the way. Today's adventure tour guide is a master storyteller who's going to walk us through the pages of his highly anticipated newly released thriller, Blood World. Please welcome the wildly imaginative Chris Mooney. Chris, thanks so much for setting aside the time. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Oh, I am too. I've dug into your volume of work and kind of looked back at some of the things you've produced through the years and just some fascinating stuff out there. I can't wait to uh, leaf through some of it. You write a successful series featuring crime scene investigator Darby McCormick. You also have written several standalones. Some authors write one or the other, but I'm always intrigued when I get an opportunity to talk with an author who spends time in each world Is one kind of like the comfort of home for you and the other kind of like that vacation hotspot that's been on your bucket list for a long time? You know, I'm I'm looking forward to visiting (laughs) here, but I'm only packing my essentials. So how does that work for you as the writer? It's a great it's a great question. I think, you know. The pro of, of doing a standalone is that it's a whole new world and it's, and it's exciting. It's adventure. I've never been here before. Everything's brand new, but you know, it requires a lot, a lot more plotting and getting used to the environment and getting used to the character. So there's kind of like a burn in time. Mm-hmm. Whereas with a series, it's familiar and that's a good thing. The negative thing about well negative is probably the wrong word but the different thing about a series is that if you write a series what a reader is asking is i want you to give me the same thing but different Mm -hmm. so it's a tricky balancing act you want to give them all the stuff that they expect from the main character because that's who they're really you know, uh, reading for is the main character and, and obviously the story, but the main character is the one that they really latch on to. And it's like, I, I want the familiarity of some of the stuff I've read, but I want also some, some, some new stuff. So, you know, it's kind of like comfort with some new elements to it. It's like, you know, oh, I have a vacation home down the Cape that I go to once a year or something like that versus a standalone, of, which is, okay, we're taking a sudden trip. We're going to Italy. We've never been there. We're gonna. I'm gonna scope out the land, and, I, and I'll get back to you with everything. So for the reader, they're excited about going to the same amusement park they visit every year, but they're going to stand in line for the new ride 
that just opened up as opposed to hit all the old ones. They're looking to see what's being offered that's new and exciting, what just got developed. Yeah, that's actually a really good analogy. It's, you know, you get into the story and what I always try to do, and it's a delicate balancing act with with series is that you never want to feel as though just because you're reading a series that you know what's going to happen in the story because right. you don't. I like I make sure that they're unpredictable, but the familiar part that you're talking about going to the amusement park that you've been to is that, okay, I know who, in the case of Darby McCormick, I know what she's capable of. I know the things she's going to do, and I'm actually looking forward to seeing that. I just don't know how it's going to unfold yet. Exactly, yeah, because when we go visit the uh, Walt Disney World Animal Kingdom, I want to see the new rides, but no matter where I am in the park, I know how to find my way back to Rainforest Cafe, and that that's where I'm eating at the end of the day. So right. that, that's kind of, uh, yeah, I like that analogy that you bring to the table there. We're going to check back in with Darby in a little while, but I want to find out about okay. your new release, Blood World. It unfolds in a culture where the prize is eternal youth. The commodity, as the title would suggest, is a special signature in the blood. When a game-changing puzzle piece is in short supply, in my mind, a pair of driving forces are always in play. Power and money. Between the two, which kind of brings more depth to the storyline for you as the storyteller? I think people, especially in the political climate that we're in now, and, you know, this is nothing new, is that, you know, people know that money and power are the things that unlock doors and, and, and grant you access to things that the quote normal people may not see. Mm-hmm. And it's funny you should bring that up because when I did the first draft of blood world, I really just focused on the money and power stuff and and it was interesting and it was thrilling and all that other stuff, but there was something for me that was missing and I couldn't put my finger on it. And one of the things, that I did with Blood World is yes, there's this uh, there's this eternal youth sort of formula where if you have this blood from what they call carriers and you mix it with a certain drug cocktail that people are trying to unlock what it is. There's different ones and they do different things. And my main guy Sebastian seems to have the quote best product on the market. Yes, it melts fat, it, it tightens skin, uh, you know, muscle tone, sex life of your dreams, all of that wonderful stuff. But the thing I added later was that there was an aspect to this is like, well, this blood is so powerful, it can knock out diseases, if not reverse things like cancer and Alzheimer's and stuff like that. Okay. And one of the things that started to really appeal to me in the story was how far would a, quote, regular person go of not unlimited financial means? How far would someone like that go if it meant saving your loved one or a child who was, you know, stricken with a rare disease? Like, in the morality question, that was the thing that really excited me about it, because we all like to say, oh, I would never do such and such. But when you find yourself in a situation, an extraordinary situation, that's that question I always come back to is how far are you willing to go to do X? Yeah. So that's kind of what Blood World ultimately became about. Yeah, it's exciting. I mean, I, hey, listen, I would love to be able to take something like this and drop the last 20 pounds or whatever and, you know, make my knees feel better and all of these wonderful things. But there's got to be more to the store than just like a, a surface element. So it does all the things that my mom used to tell me carrots and Brussels sprouts would. And and that intrigues me because I wanted all of those things in my life. But what you really played with, at at least in some aspects of this story, was the age old question of just because we can doesn't mean we should. And where is that line and how far am I willing to push it? Exactly. And the other wrinkle I threw in there is that um, there's... As I was saying, there's this thing called carrier blood. Yeah. And it's produced by a gene that, you know, I don't get I, I don't get into the book like all this medical stuff. So if any I don't want anyone to panic like you need a PhD in medicine to understand <laughs> this because you don't. So 
if you have this blood and you take it, all these great things happen. But the wrinkle that I put in there was the younger the person, the more powerful the blood. Wow. So one of the kind of twists is, is that if you get a carrier who's, say, I don't know, a 15-year-old, that blood is more powerful than a carrier who's 25. Although they're still valuable, it's the 15-year-old. That's It's the purest blood that you can get. And, you know, you can go younger and younger if you want. So when Blood World opens up, as the story unfolds, you find out that a lot of these carriers that are being abducted are younger. They're being abducted from homes, forcibly from schools, the streets, you name it. It's happening. So there's, in Los Angeles, there's this kind of wild, wild west sort of mentality. And we're almost living in this, this state where everyone's going around pretty much armed because they want to protect themselves and their kids. Uh, it's illegal to list who carriers are and who carriers aren't. And that goes back to the first question we were talking about was, how far are you willing to go to help someone that you love? Would you give blood to a spouse or a child or a friend that you love dearly, knowing that the blood has been stolen from some teenager who's locked in some sort of blood farm and is being forced to give it up? And again, that goes to all the different shades of morality that are going on that I, I thought as a, you know, as a reader are so interesting to delve into. Yeah, as I was reading about that concept of, of blood farms and, and folks, L.A. Police Department Officer Ellie Batista is kind of at the heart of our investigation. And we're going to get to her in just a minute. But before we kind of dig into her background and how she gets involved in the story, Chris, I was reading about this with the blood farms and everything, and we're familiar with the blood mobile and how that goes to help society of people who need blood at times. So we give that, we donate it. But in this case, the blood farm seems to be a black market of where it's not donated resources, it is stolen resources. And that kind of puts them in a whole new I guess, uh, scene, a, a, a much darker scene. How did that come into view for you as the story was unfolding? The idea kind of came about where is it's somewhat based on some fact. And what I mean by that is I'd been reading various articles about Silicon Valley types who have unlimited money. They're starting to do a lot of this biohacking stuff. And oh, one of the okay. things was hey, you know, let's try blood transfusions, younger blood to an older person. They'll help me live forever or do this. You know, they're, they're trying all of these different things and they're putting immense amounts of money and resources into it. Sounds like so, somebody's been reading too much Anne Rice out there. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's So that's kind of where it originates. And when things start happening, it's not regulated mm. in any way, shape, or form, and it just kind of explodes. So there's no, quote, FDA-approved version of, of this, mainly because a lot of it is untried. Yes, if you take uh, blood from a carrier and get a transfusion, you have to have a certain chemical cocktail, and the FDA and others are working on that big thing, but they haven't unlocked it yet. Although my guy has. Okay. And that makes him a target. Okay. I see. This kind of has, and, and I don't want to superimpose this if it's not if it's not a good fit, but with the potential here for the blood farms and where the resources come from as far as there's only so much of this unique blood source through the carriers right. that's available, the younger, the better, etc. This kind of has the the grimy feel of a human trafficking type of an operation, at least that it could become as such. And as much as we abhor the thought, as much as we publicly would just like to erase that from human history, both past and future, we know that human trafficking still exists in many forms. Did, did any overtones from that world uh, color the way you approach some of the perils of those who are being hunted for their blood gene? Yes. 
and again, it's a great question, which is, you know, human trafficking is not a subject of a beach read or, no. you know, a subject of a, like, oh, I'm going to sit down and read this awesome book on human trafficking. So what I did purposely was that is all happening in the background. And our main bad guy, uh, or one of them, I should say, the, but the main one is this guy, Sebastian Kane, who owns and operates his own blood farm. And what I wanted to do, and I make this very clear early on, is that, yes, he has a blood farm. And, yes, he abducts carriers. However, he treats them as business partners. He treats them as human beings. He has this very skewed morality where, as you're reading the story, you actually like him and you're rooting for him, which was a really fun thing to do. So what his argument is, is that this is all happening around me, this human trafficking that you're calling it. And there's no question it's dirty and, it, and it's horrific and all that. But I'm going to be the anti-guy for that. I'm going to do this. In his mind, I'm going to take these carriers. I'm going to make them business partners. I'm going to grow a business. And I'm going to give them a life that they never would have had if I hadn't taken them. His code is, well, I'm only going to take carriers that come from really bad backgrounds or bad economic conditions. And in his mind, he's rescuing them. And he's going to give them this great life. He doesn't abuse them. He treats them well. I mean, uh, they're very healthy, treated well, healthy diets, exercise, all of this stuff. But at the end of the day, they're imprisoned. Right. They're not going anywhere. Yeah, he's he's selling them on the idea of I'm taking you off the streets, I'm turning you into public heroes for the society, but at the end of the day, he still owns them. That's 100% correct. Wow, wow. Let's put our police officer back in the spotlight. We haven't talked to her sure. about her at all, and I know that she's a focal point in this story. Her name is Ellie Batista. She's a member of yep. a task force known as the Blood Squad, What's the mandate for the Blood Squad, and what's their biggest challenge in that they face on a day-to-day -day basis? So when the story opens up, what you're seeing is you're reading a story that happens in the not-too-distant future, meaning, say, five, six years from now, where this thing has suddenly happened, where they find carriers and genes, and all of a sudden, carriers are being identified and abducted. And that puts a strain on any sort of law enforcement resource. And as we can see, you know, reading the papers, watching the news, any sort of bureaucratic thing takes a long time to adjust. So when the story opens, this blood squad, as you called it, is somewhat new. And the LAPD is recognized that they have to devote new resources to this because it's straining the resources that they already have. And the problem that they're facing is that they don't really know who the big blood operators are yet. Mm. So Blood World is actually, you know, it's a thriller crime story. And we see Ellie knows this is the wave of the future. She knows this is never going away. The cat's out of the bag. And she has a very uh, secretive reason for wanting to get into it, but she's also very, very passionate about this. And she's really determined to, to make a difference. She's young. She's idealistic. She's going after what she wants. What she doesn't know is what this is going to cost her along the way and the hard choices that she's going to have to make to get what she wants. And that's something I've always been fascinated about whether it's blood world or the Darby books or whatever it is I write, you know, one of the things I always keep coming back to is how far are you willing to go to get the truth? And as we know, getting the truth is a very messy, complicated and costly process. And there's a lot of times in real life, we see people who have fought the system or have, been uh, obsessed about something. I'm thinking that comes to mind. There's a great show on HBO right now based on a nonfiction book called I'll Be Gone in the Dark. Mm -hmm. And it's a story, and I'm diverging here for a second, but it's a story about this, this, this woman who is obsessed 
with finding the identity of, uh, I think it's called the East Area Rapist and then the Golden State Killer. She's after a serial killer. And watching how it consumes her mentally, physically, spiritually, and what it does to her, that's something that to me is so realistic and so compelling, and yet it's never talked about all that much. You know, you see movies, you know, Clint Eastwood comes in, saves the day and all that, uh, but there's really no cost to it. And watching this this documentary and then reading the book and going back to Blood World, um, I love characters who want to do the right thing. And when they get do the right thing, they're in the process of doing the right thing. They have to make really hard decisions that change fundamentally who they are, who they thought they were. Mm. So it sounds like that we've got Ellie at a crossroads. Sebastian has found a way to kind of supersize the potency in the blood. She's discovering what's going on. The more she finds out, it sounds like that she's met with an emotional struggle of what she believed and what she wanted to stand for versus what reality may be tempting her with. Am I connecting those dots in a reasonable manner? Absolutely. That's absolutely, everything that you said is 100% correct. And she actually, as she gets closer to Sebastian, she begins to like him. And there's all of these competing things going on, and that's really what the book is about, is that hunt and how the hunt changes you both from Ellie's point of view and from Sebastian's point of view. What's the cost of, what's the cost of doing this? What, it, what he believes is the right thing. If only life was a little less confusing. Characters and character development. We're going to dig into both on the other side of this break. My guest, Chris Mooney, we're talking about his latest release, Blood World. You don't want to go anywhere, folks. We will be right back. This is Joseph Finder, the author of House on Fire, and you're listening to Public Display of Imagination with your host, Mark Dwayne Combs. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of those who have become friends of the show through Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash P-D-I and become a valued part of the show. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash P-D-I. Your support moves that needle. We're at the midpoint of this week's adventure and there's more great conversation just ahead. But I want to take a moment to thank those of you who are podcast subscribers and those of you who help support the show through Patreon. We love bringing these conversations your way, but there is a physical cost involved in producing each weekly adventure. We're going to have to replace some of the outdated computer equipment in the recording studio by the end of the year. And without support from our podcast family, folks just like you who support us through Patreon, bringing you the show each week just wouldn't be possible. So if you enjoy the podcast, we'd really appreciate your support through Patreon slash PDI. There's a link to it on the host page for each adventure. Another great way you can show support for the show is by using the links to Amazon that are found throughout the Public Display of Imagination website. Whenever you use one of our links to go to the Amazon site, we get a small percentage of override on your purchase, whatever it might be. So if you clicked on a book title but ended up purchasing a miniature basketball hoop to hang over the door of your home office or a new weatherproof projector so you can invite members of your fantasy football league over on Sundays and project the live feed of Red Zone Channel against the side of your house so you and your friends can be socially distant together? Well, your purchase just helped the show because you used one of our links to get to the Amazon site. So if you're going to Amazon, please let us be your doorway. The Sendable Social Media Tool is another great way you can show support for the show. If you're an author, a publicist, a publisher, or anyone who uses social media 
to help promote your business. I promise you, you won't find a more useful application anywhere. Like Amazon, we've got links to Sendable on almost every page of the website. Click on it and take a free 14-day test drive on us. We've been using Sendable for over a year, and I couldn't recommend it more highly. It's the best $29 I spend on this show each month. One last thing. Don't forget to check out the host page for this adventure. I realize you're probably listening to the podcast via iTunes, Google, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Deezer, or one of a host of other podcast listening platforms. And we do hope that you'll give us a rating and review while you're listening. But the adventure host pages on the public display of Imagination website are where you'll find direct links to the authors, their books, and their social media pages. You'll also see a link to the Inside the Writer's Workshop segment that we recorded with today's guest. It's uploaded to our public display of Imagination YouTube channel and waiting just for you. It's always one of my favorite segments, and we're excited to bring these extended author interview segments your way via YouTube. So I hope you'll check out the Public Display of Imagination channel on YouTube and explore all of the fantastic Inside the Writer's Workshop conversations that we have available. Now, let's get back to this week's PDI Adventure. This is Zoe Sharp, the author of Bones in the River, and you're listening to Public Display of Imagination with your host, Mark Dwayne Coons. I used to dream that I was a king and I could fly far away. All right, we're back. My guest, Chris Mooney. We're talking about his latest release. It's called Blood World. And Chris, I know for every author, they have to have a place online. They have to carve out some real estate to call their own. They have to have their own website. They have to be present on social media. You kind of have to be everywhere, but you can't be everywhere at the same time. Most authors have a preference of where they're most active. If somebody wanted to follow your work more closely, maybe find out more about this story or even some of your past work, what's the best place for them to follow you online? Well, the best place, the kind of landing page, I would say, is chrismooneybooks.com because that has all of the the books I've written. That way you can get, like if you uh, go onto the website, you can get an exclusive uh, prologue of Blood World that's not published in the book. So, I, you know, I tend to give a lot of stuff away there. As for the other social media stuff, I'm definitely more active on Facebook and Instagram, and that's Chris Mooney Books. And I'm also active on Twitter, which is C Mooney Books. But yeah, I try to do all three of them, but definitely Instagram and Facebook seem to be the ones that work the best for me. And folks, we're going to have links on the host page for this adventure so you can click and get right to those pages. Whether you want to go to Chris's website and read the prologue that he just told you about or whether you you know you're active on Facebook or Instagram you can click get right there follow him we'll get you to the right page so that you can stay on top of all the things that he has coming out not only now but in the future Chris in our open we touched on a few of the approach differences between standalone thrillers and a series Let's turn our attention to the protagonist role in each setting for just a few minutes. How many sure. books do we currently have in the Darby McCormick series? Wow, that's a good question. I, I'm <laughs> going to say off the top of my head, I think there's eight. Eight? Okay. I wasn't sure. Yep. I looked and I saw some places there were six. I saw some places there were seven. I didn't know if the seventh was one that was coming out a year from now. So I wanted to make sure I asked <laughs> that question. How many How many are out in print right now? Um, when you're looking at a protagonist such as Darby, who's going to be around for 2,500 plus pages of storyline, how do you handle the character background and personality? It, you have to be consistent over the course of time, but you can't dump her whole history into the first 75 pages of book one, right? Right. Yeah, that's correct. 
you know, there's always that tricky element of, you know, how much do you tell a new reader? Because what I do is any book I write, especially, you know, especially when we're talking about a series, any book in that series is designed for you to pick it up at any point. You know, a lot of readers like to go, well, I want to start a book one and work my way through, which is fine. Uh, but you can pick up Darby at any point. But going back to your question, what I generally try to do is introduce some key things as a scene is unfolding. That way it doesn't feel like an info dump because there's nothing worse than taking a pause in the action and, and telling the reader, okay, let me tell you everything you need to know about Darby and I'm going right. to info dump it on you because uh, readers don't want that. They'll, uh, they'll, you know, throw the book across the room. What a reader wants is that sense of discovery, which is even though I know maybe I've read all the Darby books, I'm going to read the new one. I know he's going to introduce some stuff, but he's going to do it in a way that's kind of fresh and exciting and maybe even funny for me as a long-term reader. And it's for the new reader. It will just be fresh and exciting. Yeah, it's interesting. You go back 20, 25 years and maybe I'm going back too far. I don't know, but there used to be this thought of if I'm going to really tell an epic tale I need to spend time developing the background of a character, and that may take 150, 200, 300 pages to develop that character, and then I can tell the story. And that's not a page-turner today. Readers want something to happen in the first page, page and a half, six paragraphs of a novel, or they're like, why am I still watching the sunshine through the back window of the room? I need something right. to happen on the page. Yes. I guess the best way I can answer that is readers want to discover. Yeah. They want to learn things as they unfold. And they readers are very, very smart. They pick up on things. And, you know, I teach creative writing occasionally at uh, the Harvard Extension School and at the Harvard Summer Writing Program. And that's that's a question that comes up a lot. It's like, I, I have this character and I want the reader to know everything about the character before the action starts. And you can't do that. I understand the, the impetus of wanting to do it, but you can't do it because you're going to bog down the reader and, and, and bore him or her. Right. So what always works best is showing and a reader is going to connect to a character by watching what the character says and does as something's unfolding. Right. And you can put in that backstory that you're talking about. This is the great thing about fiction is that, you know, you have these beats and before someone says or does something, you can dip inside their, their head for a reaction or how they feel about something and get some insight before the scene moves forward. And it's, it's a more, visual way of storytelling, I think, because if you watch TV shows and movies, the the actors are doing all the work for you. Mm -hmm. But the scene is always moving. And that's always something you want to be doing in fiction. The scene always has to be moving, whether it's a thriller, or a romance book or, or, or literary fiction, it needs to be moving. The reader needs to be swept up in the book and not being bogged down by unnecessary detail that they don't need right then and there. Right. Yeah. If they wanted that, they would have picked up a biography like Carl Sandburg's Lincoln or something like that. They picked up a thriller because they want to turn pages and not to say that biographies aren't good, but they're a different type of a read and they're designed to be a different type of a read. Are you aging? And this is a question that always, I guess, is curious for me when it comes to a series, especially one that's seven, eight, nine books deep. Are you aging Darby in real time or just progressively over the course of the story from story to story? It's progressively from story to story. So it's not like in, in, in book time, it's, you know, if there's a book every year, she isn't necessarily getting, you know, one year older year to year. Right. Yeah. But that said, you know, I do do ages, you know, when uh, the missing, which is the first Darby book that came out, she was in her thirties. She's definitely not in her thirties anymore. She's in, you know, she's in her forties at this point. And I like doing that because, you know, as, as you know, and everyone knows, you know, you feel different ways at different stages of your life and you learn hopefully more insights about yourself and, 
you know, you develop your own opinions about life in general and how you want to interact with it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. How about the protagonist in Blood World? Readers need to meet Ellie because she's a factor in the story, but they need to meet her at some kind of a pivotal point which fuses her with the storyline and gives a a sense of urgency that she belongs and the story can't be told without her, right? Yeah. I mean, she's got to be at a point where, and, and she is, where, you know, she's young, she's a patrol woman, and has been for two years, and it's not something she's interested in doing long term. She has, like we all are in our 20s, we have these very idealistic notions of where we want our life to go and our careers and who we're going to be. And, you know, we we really go full steam toward that. Mm-hmm. So that's what she's doing when the story opens. Sebastian is much older. He's in his mid to late 40s and he has a different outlook on life um, given his age and his you know he had a very kind of traumatic background so he has a different way of looking at life so I try to when I'm creating characters to see where their age is also kind of dictates how they think about life how much energy they have how what they're really really passionate about you know Ellie's passionate about the big case and doing the right thing and not necessarily, you know, looking for all the glory for it, but it gives for her, it gives her a sense of purpose. Whereas Sebastian is more content and in growing his business, but keeping it manageable. And then as, and I won't give too much away, that gets threatened by another big bad guy that Sebastian knows and who's younger. And it's an interesting thing, you know, being someone myself who's 50, you know, seeing younger people and how they interact with the world, you know, versus someone who's late 40s, early 50s, we just have a different take on life. Yeah. Hopefully, you know, in a good way. Right. You describe Ellie as being someone who's young. She's somewhat aggressive. She's seeing her future and trying to lay in the groundwork to get there. Sebastian, on the other hand, is someone that's kind of built his future and is grounded and is trying to maintain and, I guess, prosper from the fruits of his labor that got him to this point. Right. And with Sebastian, Sebastian doesn't care about money and never has. Yeah. So you think of, you know, as we're talking, I'm sure the readers think, like, oh, he lives in this huge palace and, you know, cars. He is the guy next door. He lives in a nice area of Los Angeles, but not, you know, his home is nothing, you know, it's not a mansion and, and, you know, multiple Mercedes and all of this other stuff. And his cover is he's a real estate agent. So he's just appears like a normal guy. Whereas the guy who wants his business wants to expand it, which Sebastian has zero interest in. And that creates this dichotomy because the younger guy who's after Sebastian he basically wants to be a Roman emperor, a god, or whatever. It's, he's one of those type types of people that he's never, no matter how much money you give him, no matter how much power, no matter how many cars, homes, whatever he has, he's never satisfied. It always has to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Where Sebastian feels he's doing something for the greater good and will and will be recognized for it at some point. So the younger guy sounds like he's wanting to build a a legacy that's going to mark him as someone who changed the world. And Sebastian feels like, hey, I've got something here that has changed the world, and I want to make sure it stays operating on a level that is productive. I would say you're 100% correct. Let's talk, uh, let's talk about the true hero of any given story. Since we got these two guys on the table... I want to talk about the true hero of any story, the villain. Without the crafty villain, the protagonist never gets to spread their wings. Are there tiers and levels to the personalities that serve up conflict and angst, or are they all just cut from the same trunk of the bad guy family tree and you just kind of carve off their limb in a different direction? It almost sounds like you're describing two antagonists that are antagonists on entirely different levels and for different reasons. Yeah, I would say there's some truth to that. I mean, 
if you look at like a good example is, I don't know, we can use the Christopher Nolan Batman mm-hmm. movies, which I really liked. So you have Batman's the, the, the good guy and, you know, he wants to do the right things. And the thing I always liked about that is that he is doing the right things, but there's a terrible cost for all of this. And the, the quote, the villains that he's up against, especially the, the Heath Ledger Joker, there's a lot of depth to him. And what all antagonists and protagonists do is that the protagonist wants something. The antagonist is preventing him or her from getting it. On a basic level, that's what it is. And those two things clash because they're, you know, in direct opposite of each other. But as a writer, the thing that you have that's great is that while on the surface it seems very basic, you have all of this endless possibilities to develop different characters, whether they be the, the good guy or the bad guys. The bad guys are always the more most interesting because they're doing stuff that we, as a quote, normal person, wouldn't ordinarily do. And yet we want to see them doing their bad things and kind of figure out why it is. I think for me, with fiction, one of the great things is that, you know, we read these things for a sense of explanation and order. Yeah, there's entertainment, but it also gives us this feeling of, oh, that's the type of person I have to watch out for. Like, oh, that's how someone like this hides. That's what a psychopath is. That's what a sociopath is. And people want, I think the human condition is to want to know these things so you're on alert for them. Mm-hmm. Or, at le- or at the very least, that you understand them when these bad things happen, which isn't necessarily the case. When you're writing a series, your protagonist, and I'm going back to Darby because of the, of the yep. length of the books, but uh, or the number of the books, I should say, uh, when you're writing a series like that, the protagonist is someone that's going to be there volume after volume, but at times... The villain of the story, the pro, the antagonist, seems somewhat dispensable. I can solve the case. I can remedy the problem. I can dispense of this particular character. But to me, I'm always intrigued by that recurring mastermind who kind of sees themselves as the counterpart and the worthy adversary that kind of initiates a personal challenge for the protagonist and sticks around for a while. Have you played with that type of a, of an individual, that type of a personality? Yes, I have. In fact, the book I'm writing right now deals with an antagonist, and I'll use Hannibal Lecter since he's been in multiple books, who is someone like Hannibal Lecter. She's, it's a woman who has a connection to the main character and she issues him these personal challenges Mm. and knows things about him that he doesn't know about himself without getting too, too deep into it. But yes, I love the antagonist that keeps coming around over and over again, or plays some sort of part in, in the books and to go to the Harris books. I mean, Lecter, it's so interesting to me that in Red Dragon, which is the first time you see Hannibal Lecter, he's barely in it, and yet he just jumps out. Right. In Silence of the Lambs, he's more involved. Mm-hmm. He plays equal billing, but yet if you look at the the book, Buffalo Bill is the person that you know Starling is after, and Lecter is kind of guiding her, but also getting personal information out of her. And that is such a compelling thing that it's something that I wanted to, I finally had an idea for something like that for hopefully a new series of books that I started to sit down and write that. And it's a lot of fun. I really enjoy that because it, it feels like the interaction between the two becomes personal on a level that they are both challenged by and changed by the other. And that's always intriguing to me because as individuals, we can't go through life without those who are a part of our life having that impact on us. But it seems like that we don't think of it that way until we see it play out in an ongoing story where the 
antagonist sticks around for a while and really has some staying power and some, I'll coin the word, creepability to him. Yeah, and what makes those characters very interesting is the psychology behind them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I forget who, what author said this, but if you want to create an antagonist who is an exceptionally good at exploiting the protagonist's greatest weakness. Right. So to use the Dark Knight, the one with Heath Ledger, going back to Batman, is going back to that is, you know, the Joker represents chaos and anarchy and all this other stuff. And there's a scene where the Joker has this information that Batman needs and Batman, you know, is beating the crap out of him. And the Joker starts laughing and he, he says, you have nothing, nothing that you can use to threaten me with because he just doesn't care. And there's this moment where you just see Batman totally hopeless right. and he knows it. And those moments, going back to what you're talking about, that expose that sort of psychology between the two characters, you know, in different ways is so compelling and something that I absolutely love to do. We're talking on July 22nd. This conversation, folks, will release and coincide with the release of Blood World in mid-August. I remember as an eight-year-old watching on a small black-and-white television with tinfoil wrapped around the antennas (laughs) as Neil Armstrong took his first steps on the surface of the moon. That was July 20th. 51 years ago, 51st anniversary just celebrated. Is there a personal event in your life, either recent or in your childhood, that impacts your approach to storytelling? I've never forgotten the moon landing. Is there something that stands out to you that's kind of a linchpin that you think you'll always look back on and be able to build from um, with your imagination? You know, as you were talking, the thing that jumped out to me, which is going to sound creepy on the surface, but I forget how old I was when the Atlanta child murders were happening. And all I knew is that it reached a point where it got national news and it was all over the papers. It was all over the news. Uh, I remember my parents trying to hide the papers I remember my parents trying to keep the news down and I I was young. I'm going to say maybe about seven or so. And anyway, we had to go to Atlanta and we had to go into a store and it was the first time I grew up in a time where I could go out of the house. I'm playing with my friends. I'm gone all day. My parents didn't care. I could ride my bike anywhere. My parents didn't care. I go into a store with them. I'm going to go to the toy aisle. You know, she's going to go get whatever she needs to get. And, you know, at some point we'll meet up. And that was the first time I remember going into, I don't know, a Kmart or something like that with my parents. And my mother turned to me and she said, under no exception, are you to leave my side in any way, shape or form? And I remember going in there and I remember her being, I remember being next to her. And I remember several times her grabbing my hand or my wrist. And my sister was much younger, so she was more portable. But going through the store, all the kids were like that. At least that was my perception of it. And I kind of had an idea of what was happening. And the thing that really struck with me was going into this brightly lit store where things are on sale and all that. There was this pervasive sense of terror, like some big thing was going to happen or there was a monster lurking about and you didn't know where it was. And it was absolutely important that everyone stayed huddled together because there was safety in numbers And that was something I never forgot. Chris Mooney, ladies and gentlemen, Chris Mooney. His newest release is the standalone thriller Blood World. Chris also writes the Darby McCormick series and has several other standalone bestsellers. Links to his books as well as his social media pages are posted on the host page for this adventure at publicdisplayofimagination.com. Pick up a copy and start your journey. Chris, all the best with the book. I'm just fascinated by the storyline and looking forward to digging into it myself. Thanks so much for joining me on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This was an absolute pleasure.
I really enjoyed talking with Chris about the storyline of Blood World and some of the thought processes that go into developing characters and telling a great story. But the fun is only beginning, folks. In our Inside the Writers Workshop segment, we'll find out what Chris is working on now. And we'll also talk about some of the other things that Chris has written. He's also going to tell us about a life-changing experience from his childhood that fueled his desire to become an author. You certainly don't want to miss that story. You'll find it all on the Public Display of Imagination YouTube channel. We call it our Inside the Writer's Workshop segment, and we do one with each author guest that you hear here on the podcast. You can listen to that portion of the conversation right from the host page for each adventure on the Public Display of Imagination website. And we hope that you're intrigued enough at this point to join us there as we go behind the curtains with Chris Mooney. You'll also see book summaries on the host page for this adventure and find hot links to Amazon for many of the books we talked about over the course of our conversation. Thank you for subscribing and listening through whatever podcast listening platform you use to follow the show. Please don't forget to give us a rating and a review. And until next time, remember, the light at the end of someone's darkness may be you. Theme music for the Public Display of Imagination podcast is provided by Joe King, J-Bone Fettinger, and Zachary Motes. You can find the complete playlist for the Milltown Road Band on Spotify.